Um, but many of you are probably familiar with the, the show Let's Make a Deal. And kind of the premise of it, there's, there's different games they play on that game show, but the, the, the premise of the, the game is pretty much the same regardless of it. Is that the contestant comes up, and I don't know if you noticed that was the 2020 version of Let's Make a Deal because there weren't people in the crowd. Um, if you saw that, like the, the Let's Make a Deal, I remember had all these crazy costumes and all these crazy people dressed up in crazy outfits, and now 2020 you get like three people dressed up in, in somewhat costumes like that. But the premise of the show kind of works like this, that uh, somebody gets selected, they, they get to be the contestant, and then the contestant is really kind of given this option. They, they're kind of presented with one, two, sometimes three different options, but most time it's like you get to pick between this option and this option. So then the host, Wayne Brady now, used to be Marty Hall, um, will present to you one of the options, and they'll say, all right, you can have this, and they'll show you what that prize is, right? And in Bill's case, it was a remote control car, and I, Bill, like I watched a lot of those clips and Bill was my favorite because he was so excited about a remote control car like most of them don't get that pumped up about a remote control car but if you got an eight-year-old and ten-year-old that's something to get pumped up about all right so you you know what this one prize is and then it's all right well let's make a deal I will take back the one thing that that you know but I'm going to offer you something else but what I'm offering you is usually behind door number two, or in this case, curtain number three. It's, it's hidden behind something. You have no idea what it is. It may be something big. It may be something elaborate. It may be a new car. Or it may be a zonk, like a guy dressed up in a donkey costume. Or it may be something unusual, like a broken down car or something like that. So you don't know. So really what you are, have to contestant have to do is that you're presented with these two options. One of them is a sure thing. One of them you know straight up, this is what you're getting. There's no question about it. If you pick this, this is what you walk away with. The other is take a chance. That there, there's a big, huge curtain, and there's this big, huge box. And what behind it may be good, it may not be good, but you really don't know. And so the, the question is, do you want to take the sure bet, or do you want to take a chance that what's behind the next door is going to be better than the sure thing you got on your plate? And so for a lot of folks, they'll choose the big curtain or they'll choose behind door number one because for some of them, there's just this, it's big and it's elaborate and so it's got to be something great behind it. And then they find out that it may not be as great because it comes in a beautiful package. For some folks, it's just this risk of the, I want the unknown. I want to, to see what's behind there and I want this option of being the, kind of this risk behavior even though it's, it's an unknown thing. And so people are willing to give up what they know for sure for what they don't know. People are willing to, to make a deal and give up a sure thing versus what they don't know for sure. And so as we get to Proverbs chapter 9, uh, we see kind of this same thing going on and kind of this let's make a deal. We're going to be presented with two options this morning, two different invitations. One is an invitation of wisdom, which is the sure thing. This is it. This is what's laid out there for you. And the other is the invitation of folly. Basically, come and try to figure it out after you get inside. All right? So these two invitations that we're going to be presented with this morning, we're going to have this choice of which one of these do you want to take. Do you want to take the sure thing, the, the imitation of wisdom, or do you want to take the chance and the imitation of folly? So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in Proverbs 9 this morning. We're not going to read the whole thing. We're going to read the first six verses, and then we're going to skip down to verse uh, 13 and read uh, the rest of it just for time's sake. We are going to work through the whole thing, but just for time's sake, we won't read the whole thing. But Proverbs chapter 9 starts off like this. It says in verse 1, Wisdom has built her house. She has carved out her seven pillars. She has prepared her meat and she has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her female servants. She has called out from the highest point of the city. Whoever is inexperienced, enter here. And the one who lacks sense, she says, come, 
eat my bread and drink the wine that I have mixed. Leave inexperience behind you and you will live. Pursue the way of understanding. Now that compared to starting in verse 13, the invitation of folly. In verse 13 says, The woman folly is rowdy. She is gullible and knows nothing. She sits at the doorway of her house and at the seat at the highest point of the city, calling to those who pass by, who go straight ahead on their paths. Whoever is inexperienced, enter here. To the one who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten secretly is tasty. But he doesn't know that the departed souls are there and that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much for today. God, we thank you, uh, God, that, that we can come and we can glorify you and we can sing praise to you. Uh, God, I pray the song that we sang earlier is the desire of heart. God, that we will be a little less like us and a little more like you. God, I pray that we will be a little more like you when we leave this place because we will reflect your grace and your mercy, your kindness and your goodness, God. And so, God, I'm praying this morning that you are our teacher, God, and that we are your students. God, over and over in this passage and in this book of Proverbs, God, you have presented yourself as our teacher. And so, God, I'm praying this morning, God, that we are ready to hear your words. God, that we are ready to accept your words, God. God, I'm praying in this moment you will find us teachable. God, you will find us ready to accept the wisdom and the truth that you have for us. And God, and to do that, we have to get ourselves out of the way. And so, God, I'm praying that in this moment we will push ourselves out of the way, we'll push anything else out of the way that's blocking our connection with you in this moment. And so, God, I pray that you speak, and I pray that we listen. And, I, God, I pray that when we leave here, God, we are more like you than we've ever been in our lives. Father, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. This past week, our family uh, got to go visit Biltmore Estates up in Asheville. And some of you may have been there. Some of you may be familiar with that. And uh, we kind of joked around about how that was going to be our summer home and how we were going to spend our summers there, kind of like the Vanderbilts got to. And we really kind of joked about that that was going to be our weekday home. You know, some folks have like beach houses they go to on weekends. But since I'm a pastor, I really only work on the weekends anyway. And so I, we were going to go spend our weekdays at Biltmore. And then we'd, spend, we'd come back to Beaumont Farms on the weekend because they're roughly the same size, both those houses, what we live here and what we live up there roughly the same size but we joked around about a lot had a good time and uh and got to enjoy it and, and see the experience of it and so we got to read a lot about the house and how it was built and all the things like that and uh, for you guys that have been there you know that this house was built by uh, george vanderbilt and it took um over a thousand workers six years to finish building this house it, it took a long time in fact the first thing they had to do was build a railroad to get to the place the house is going to be built and then they had to build a brick factory to build enough bricks to build the house itself. So this is an extensive, massive project, and it's the largest privately owned home in America. And so uh, it took them six years to, to finish building this thing, and George Vanderbilt was so proud of it uh, that it was finished in October of, of or excuse me, 1895, and he wanted to invite folks into this home for, for Christmas. And so that's, that year, in 1895, he sent invitations across the country to many of his family and his, and his friends, and he asked them to join him for kind of a Christmas Eve celebration. Right? In fact, his invitation was for them to come and enjoy leisure and country pursuits. 
I don't know what their idea of a country pursuit was, but I can tell you their dress was a whole lot different than what I think of when I think of country pursuits. But he said, come in and enjoy this, and there'll be music, we'll have formal dining, and we'll have this grand uh, celebration going on in the grand ballroom there, which, or the banquet hall, which is the biggest room in the house. And, and, and it had this massive 30-foot Christmas tree there in the house. He made a huge deal about this. And in and, and those days, today everybody has a Christmas tree, but I didn't know this. In those days, only 20% of the people... In in America had Christmas trees in their house. So to have a 30-foot Christmas tree, this was a big deal. And so he was going to make this huge, extravagant thing, and he was going to be uh, have this huge invitation sent out. And so he sent this out to a lot of his family, sent this out to a lot of his friends. And as I read through that, I was kind of imagining uh, walking through there, and they, they have some mannequins dressed up. Like I kind of tried to picture what it would be like to get that invitation. Could you imagine, like, what would it be like to, to sit down at that table? I mean, you're talking some of the richest people in the world, right? Coming to one of the most expensive houses in the world, coming to eat one of the most expensive, probably the most uh, fancy dinners in the world. We read that, that their dinners often consisted of 10 courses. I don't even know, I don't know what 10 things you eat at a meal, all right? But this was their normal, this was normal. And so the Christmas one was going to be even bigger than that. And so could you imagine just being invited to sit at that table? Like, I would just love to just sit there, and, and regardless of the amounts of food that were there, just to sit and listen to the conversations that were going on. Because these weren't just rich folks. These were folks that would travel the world. This was a, a guy, George Vanderbilt, had 20,000 books in that house. Right? He was the scholar of the family. So just to sit and to listen to the conversations that were going on around that table. Man, could you imagine just, just being able to participate in that opportunity it would just be amazing and as I read through all that stuff I was reminded of this passage that I was preparing to preach on and, and the good news is that it's similar to the banquet that wisdom prepares for us invites us to in the first part of chapter 9 you see Solomon personifies wisdom as this lady and she sends out uh, this invitation for dinner and and based on the description that we have in this uh, the first few verses it really does sound like a banquet and a dinner that even the Vanderbilts would love to be part of it's something they would love to attend but see before wisdom sends out the invitation she makes sure that everything is prepared she makes sure that everything is set and ready in place before her guests arrive you see it starts in verse 1 when it says that she built her house and she carved out her seven pillars. Right? Her seven pillars kind of give the idea that the house is well established. It is solid. It is stable. This is not something new. This is not something that's thrown together the last minute. It's not something that you're going to show up to on Christmas Eve and half the house isn't going to be done. All right? This is something that is solid. It's in place. Everything is perfect. Everything is established. This is a, a solid place for you to be. All right? Some people have drawn an illustration from this to, to where Matthew, or Jesus speaks in Matthew chapter 7 where he talks about the house that's built on the solid rock versus the one that's built on the, the sands. Right? So this wisdom has built her house. It is solid. It's, it's not shaken by the winds. It is solid. It's not shaken by a new philosophy. It is solid and it doesn't get swayed by the day or the season. It doesn't have to worry about if the winds change or a storm comes. You don't have to worry about a house that has seven pillars on it. They are solid and it's immovable. And you don't have to worry about whether the wind's going to come or a storm's going to come or, or life's going to throw something at you unexpectedly because you are in a place that is sturdy and stable. You're in a place that's not going to change or shift left or right. And so understand that wisdom is not this idea of let's go with the next best greatest philosophy that's coming out there. 
Wisdom is not going to build her house and establish her house on the next new idea that's out there or the next new technology. She's not going to build her house on this get-rich-quick scheme. Her, her house is firmly established, and it's immovable. And so not only is her house solid and prepared, the meal is solid and prepared as well. According to verse 2, she has this meal, and this meal is going to be wonderful. I want you to see what it says in verse 2. She has prepared her meat, she has mixed her wine, and she has set her table. She's also set her table. And the language there is this very formal, fancy dinner that's going to happen. Right? For us, we take this kind of for granted that meat's always going to be on the table. If you grew up in a different time, if you grew up during the depressions and recessions, meat was not always on the table. All right. It wasn't always. My parents grew up and uh, my, my dad grew up in uh, cold country, West Virginia, and meat was not always on the table. I can tell you in other parts of the world, meat is not always on the table. We just kind of expect it here, but it's not always the case. Meat was a delicacy. When April and I were in, in Africa for a summer, um, we got to um, one of the big fancy meals we got to do was we got a steak. And I'm going to tell you, it was the toughest hardest to eat steak I've ever had in my life. But after not having any meat for a really long time, man, it tasted like a sweet, sweet steak, all right? Even though it was tough and hard, but it was a delicacy to them. It was something they didn't get very often. And so when the Bible speaks of eating meat, it's kind of this special thing. And she's prepared it. I means she's slaughtered it. She's got it marinated. She's making sure everything is perfect and everything is ready. And so the wine is the other thing that she's prepared. She's mixed the wine. And so she doesn't just have wine. She has mixed wine. And this isn't like a mixed drink. What she's done is, is she's mixed it for two reasons. One, she's mixed it to enhance the flavor. So she's kind of added spices. And she really wants to sweeten it up so the flavor of it comes out. But the other reason she mixes it is because she wants to dilute the alcohol content of it. Right? You don't want to give folks in your house this strong alcoholic content because it's going to totally do away with what you're trying to do. If you are wisdom and you're trying to gain understanding... You're not going to do that when people are drunk. All right? So, so this is counterproductive. So she's going to dilute it, which was a common practice in those days. What you wanted was the richest, deepest, sweetest flavor with the littlest alcohol possible. Right? That was the goal. And really the only reason they had the alcohol in there at all was because it killed off the bacteria. It made the, the water and the, the juice safe to drink. It killed off stuff. We would do it through other means, and we have other options of doing that, but they didn't in those, in those days. And so they would, they would mix it, and they would get it all ready because they wanted the best flavor with the least amount of alcohol. And so they did this to increase the flavor decrease the alcohol, but before, it had to all be done beforehand. You couldn't wait until your guest showed up to make that happen. So wisdom is always prepared beforehand. With wisdom, there is no surprises. This is what you're going to get. This is what is right in front of you. You know exactly what to expect before you even get there. You see, wisdom is always prepared and never procrastinates. If you're going to give your best, you got to start before the party arrives, right? And that's what wisdom does. And so after all this preparation, she sends out her invitation in verse 3. We're not going to read back over it. In verse 3, she sends out her servant to go do this, right? So realize the, this house of seven pillars, the best food out there. And now she's got a servant going out to send out this invitation. And in verse 4 and 5, she kind of targets her audience a little different. In verse 4 or 5, she really kind of dresses near down this guest list. In verse 4, she says, Whoever is inexperienced... Enter here, and to the one who lacks sense, you see, the one who's inexperienced, the one who lacks sense, we would call these folks gullible. We, we would say these folks are they're ones who are going to believe anything that comes by them. In fact, they're going to believe whoever spoke to them last. These are the folks that, if you throw a couple numbers at them or a sad story at them, they're on your side. 
until somebody else throws a different number at them and a different sad story, and then they're on their side. And then somebody else throws a different sad story and a different number, and then they're on their side. So really, their, their philosophy of life and the reason they, they shape their worldview is based on whoever they heard from last. So whoever last speaks to them is whoever is telling the truth, in their opinion. Whoever is the last one or tells the greatest story is the one who, who is the, worth the, uh, worthy of their uh, acceptance. And so in our day and time, we would kind of say these are folks who haven't made up their mind as to where truth is. And Warren Wearsby draws this great connection. He says, these are the folks that in our modern day culture, these are the ones that are always pushing for tolerance. Right? Always pushing for religion's tolerance because tolerance to them allows them to remain spiritually ignorant because they lack the ability to determine between truth and error. Right? And he goes on to say not only do they lack the ability to distinguish between truth and error, the truth is many of them want to remain ignorant. They want to push tolerance because they don't want the responsibility of determining between truth and error. You see, tolerance allows them to continue to plead ignorance, but it also allows them to continue to skirt the responsibility of having to make up their mind of what is true and what is not true. You see, if everything is true, the truth is then nothing can be true. And so you don't have to distinguish between truth and error because it all can be true in their mind. And so wisdom is calling out to these folks. These are the folks she's seeking because she wants to make this clear distinction between what is true and what is not true. This is the group she wants to join her. And so in verse 5, she tells them, she calls out to them. She says, come, eat my bread and drink the wine that I have mixed. Come and taste the goodness that I have to offer. Come and I want you to come and see what it is that you're missing out on. You can be out on the streets. You can walk anywhere you want. But you need to see the goodness that is here. You need to see how marvelous and wonderful this is going to be. You need to see that once you've tasted this bread and this wine, you don't want to walk in your ignorance anymore. Once you've tasted and seen what is great, you won't settle for what is good or what is okay anymore. You will know this is what is wonderful and this is what I want. You see, so many people are walking around on the streets because they've never seen the greatness of God. Many people are walking around the streets in ignorance because they never experienced how great God is. Can I tell you a sad truth? Many people are not Christians because they've never met a great Christian. You hear that? Because they've never seen somebody walk a walk, then talk the talk, and those two connected. There's a lack of experience in our culture today because people haven't experienced the greatness that God has to offer. And so she is calling out to them, come and see what you're missing out on. Come and see how great and wonderful this can become and taste all that you've been missing. And when you do, you'll never want to go back anywhere else. You'll never settle for good when you've had great before. You'll never leave here unfulfilled and you'll never go looking for something else to fulfill you or satisfy you because you'll have it all right here. And then why in verse 6 she pleads with them, leave inexperience behind and you will live. Pursue the way of understanding. In essence, she's saying you've got to repent. You're following this path of ignorance and inexperience and now you've got to stop. Come and follow me instead. Come and turn towards me. Come toward, turn towards understanding. Turn away from death and turn towards life. You see, this is not just an invitation to come and have a fancy dinner. This is an invitation that changes your life from this moment on. This is an invitation that allows you to see wisdom and see the value of wisdom. This is an invitation that allows you to see the value of the cross in a totally different light. This is an invitation that will allow you to follow the wisdom of God. And it will change every aspect of your life from this moment on. You see, so many of us became Christians because it was what we were thought we were supposed to do. And we didn't realize that when we signed up for it, we didn't sign up just to get dunked in water and one day we were done. 
We signed up for a life-altering experience. We signed up for an opportunity that was going to change every aspect of our life. That the way we did things was going to be different. The way we spent money was going to be different. The way we talked was going to be different. The way we treated people was going to be different. The way that we viewed the entire world around us should be different. Because we've sat at the table of wisdom. Because we've sat in the invitation of God who gave us this invitation. So understand that this invitation is not just to come once, sit down and have dinner. It's not just to show up on a Sunday morning. It's not just show up on a Wednesday night. This is an invitation to change every aspect of your life from this moment on. You see, this is what matters in the long run. And so you understand that the invitation is not just to come, sit down, and walk away. It is an invitation that you have to live out each and every day of your life. And so in the middle section of this chapter, the section we didn't read, but we're going to work through this because it's some beautiful content here. This middle section really kind of gives you integration. This is how you live out the invitation of wisdom. And for us sitting here this morning, for us that are joined online, these are kind of tests. Are you sitting at the table of wisdom or are you not? So if you are, you're going to see very clear attributes and characteristics this way. And if you're not, you're going to see them another way. So these are kind of the, have you accepted this invitation? Have you followed through with this invitation? Are you not? Are you you considering yourself wise? Are you not? You see, those that accept the invitation of wisdom, they don't live in experience. They're no longer mockers and scorners. They pursue wisdom. And they pursue it in a couple different ways. The first way they pursue it and they live out this invitation is that they welcome correction. They understand that they not only want someone to tell them they're wrong, but they like it when someone tells them they're wrong, or they like it when someone else has a better idea than they do. Dr. Robert Good was a very famous uh, physician, uh, in, uh, doctor in, in the 1960s and 1970s, a very world-famous guy. He did a lot with the immune system and developed a lot of our understanding of the immune system. He also did a lot of cancer research. And in 1968, he led the team that did the first successful human bone marrow transplant that was not between identical twins. You see, they'd done it between identical twins before, but he was the first one that pioneered the research, and him and his team successfully did it um, on a, a group that was not identical twins, so they didn't share DNA. His team was the first one who did it. And they did it on an eight-year-old boy who 13 members of his family had died from the disease that he had. And this kid went on to live a full life because of this procedure that he did. He was creative. He was inventive. He pioneered so many um, cancer research and immune disease research and, and, and treatments that are out there. Man, he did all kinds of fascinating things. And, and he passed away. And after he passed away, this journalist set out to kind of write this series of articles about his life and his work because he was just fascinated about how much this guy did and all the areas that he touched because it wasn't just immune response. It wasn't just cancer. He worked with some asthma research as well. And he was just fascinated about how this one guy did all of this stuff in all these different areas and how he made such a vast impact on medical science in those days. And so he began to interview some of the research doctors and some of the other uh, people that worked with him. And he came across this one associate, and he asked him, he said, what is it the date that made Dr. Good so good? Which is kind of funny. That's his name. I love it, Dr. Good. Um, it would just make me feel better if my, if my doctor was Dr. Good. All right? It would just make me feel healthier as soon as he walked in. Hey, I'm Dr. Good. Nice to meet you. We're good to go. All right? But they asked him, like, what, how did he do so much? Like, how did he, how did he spread himself out so much? And how did he, he cover so much ground when other people don't cover as much ground? And the associate said, well, it's simple. Dr. Good was never married to any of his hypotheses. And he said, what do, you, what do you mean he was never married to him? He said, well, that way, if you're never married to something, 
then when you have to break up to something, you don't have to go through the pains of divorce for it. Right? And he said, well, I don't understand. What are you talking about? He says, so listen, you need to understand something about Dr. Good. Dr. Good was quicker to abandon an idea as soon as he saw a flaw or someone pointed out a flaw to him than anyone in the entire medical field. In fact, he had a whole group of his research team that that was their job. He came up with an idea and he was working on an idea and then he had a separate group over here that their whole job was to find out the flaws that were in his system before he put it into place because he wanted these guys to do their job and he wanted them really the next day to come up with, hey, your idea is not going to work because of this. And as soon as they did that, he moved on to something else. You see, Dr. Good realized there's no reason to waste time, energy, effort, or money on an idea that's not going to work. You see, so many people in the medical field and scientists, are, we, we get married to an idea, we hold on to this idea, and we're going to fight for this idea, and we waste so much time, energy, effort, and money on an idea that is flawed from the very beginning, and we just need somebody to point out to us. You see, what Dr. Good found out was when you have someone willing to correct you, you need to listen to that correction because it allows you to move on. Correction allows for redirection, which allows for a better conclusion at the end of your result. And so Dr. Good was able to do so much good because he didn't get married to an idea and bother down here and something wasn't going to work, there was correction and he moved from there to here to here to here. He loved it when somebody came up and says, hey, Dr. Good, I don't think that's going to work. Here's why. And as soon as they found out that it wasn't going to work, there's no even wasting time or energy of it. You move on to something else. You see, Dr. Good lived out verses 8 and verses 9. He welcomed correction in this passage. He welcomed someone to come in and tell him that something needed to be done, something needed to be different. You see, he lived out verses 8 when it says, Do not rebuke a mocker, or he will hate you. Instruct, or excuse me, rebuke a wise man, and he will love you. And he goes on in verse 9, he says, Instruct a wise man, and he will be wiser still. Teach a righteous man, and he will learn more. You see, the biggest difference between a wise person and an unwise person, or a mocker, as Solomon calls them, is the wise person knows that they don't know it all. A wise person is smart enough to know that they don't know everything, and they don't get it right every single time. A wise person is smart enough to know that, that they, there are times that they don't see everything. A wise person is smart enough to know that they don't have all the answers, and that's okay. Somebody else may have an answer. You see, a wise person is wise enough to be teachable in the moments. A wise person is teachable enough to know that they have stuff they can still learn, and they need to learn, and they need to remain teachable. You see, the moment that we become unteachable is the moment that we become uncorrectable. And the moment that we become uncorrectable is the moment that says that we are above everything else and every authority. It's the moment that we say that we don't need any more wisdom. We can get up from the table because we've had our feel. It's the moment that we don't pursue understanding anymore because we know it all. The moment that we become unteachable is the moment that we replace God with ourselves because we don't need His authority anymore. We become the authority. The moment we become unteachable is the moment that we replace God's Word with ourselves and our experiences because we become the authority in those moments. You see, the wise person not only understands, then they welcome correction, but they also understand where the true knowledge and the source of knowledge is. So let me ask you, before we move on to that next point, how teachable are you? How open to correction are you from other people? You see, there are some folks that you are afraid to correct. Right? I don't know if you've ever had a boss or you worked for somebody or maybe you had a family member that you would just soon go to the dentist and get a root canal versus having to point out something in their mistakes. Because it's just that painful. Because you know that as soon as you go to that person and even in a, in a humble way try to point out something to them that, that isn't going to work, you just know they're going to blast you up one side and down the other. You see, that's not a wise person. That's a person who hates you because you've done something you were supposed to do. 
they're not going to reach a better conclusion because they didn't allow for redirection. Now, let's be honest. There may be some of us sitting in this room that people are honestly afraid to bring a correction to us. There may be some of us that are gathered online that people are honestly afraid of us because they're afraid that the moment they bring a flaw to us or a correction to us, that we're just going to explode. And maybe you're not to that extreme, but maybe you get defensive. Maybe you get offended easily if someone points out something. Maybe you do get angry, but, but what, how do you respond when someone points out a mistake to you? How do you respond when someone tries to correct you? No one really likes correction. Nobody likes to be wrong, but the wise person understands that if I'm wrong, I need correction in my life because it allows me to move on. So do you welcome correction? Do you appreciate the opportunity to learn something new? Because a correction leads to redirection, which always leads to a better conclusion. And that happens with people, but it also happens with God. Because like I said, the wise person not only knows that correction is good, but they allow themselves to be corrected by the true source of wisdom. You see, we need to know the true source of wisdom is not ourselves or even those around us. In verse 10, it makes it very clear where the true source of wisdom is. In verse 10, Solomon says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Now, if that sounds familiar to you, then you've been paying attention, all right? Because we've seen that exact same passage. In fact, months ago, um, it didn't seem like that long, but months ago when we started this book of Proverbs, in the very first chapter, chapter 1, verse 7, those same words, almost word for word, were written in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. Right? The, be, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And so people ask all the time, like, why does the Bible repeat the same thing? And it repeats the same thing in this passage for two reasons. One, it gives structure and organization to the book. Right? For you guys that are, are, are language people, you'll like this. For you guys that like the structure, you'll like this. The book of Proverbs is divided up into many different sections. Right? Section 1 is chapters 1 through 9. It's kind of the introduction. If you read sections or chapters 1 through 9 like we have been doing, you're going to notice it, it's very different. Once you flip over to chapter 10... Uh, it, it changes very quickly. Right? There's not these stories of wisdom. There's not this person of wisdom calling out. It's these very short statements that really kind of seem random, that they don't flow together at all. They're just statements that kind of get stuck in there. Right? But chapters 1 through 9 are, are very different. Solomon writes them very different. And what he's doing in 1 through 9, he's setting you up for the wisdom that he's going to give you in 10 through 31. Right? You need this wisdom, and here's the wisdom. So 1 through 9 is kind of this section by itself, and so it starts, this passage is the bookends of section 1 through 9. It starts with the fear of the Lord, and it ends with the fear of the Lord. Right? And these are the bookends that hold this section together. So it's the start and the end of this section. So that's the first reason that the Bible repeats itself in this, in this instance. The second reason, and probably the most applicable reason, is because we need to hear this again. We need to hear this message over and over and over again. If you had one passage in the Bible that you wanted to memorize, if you could only remember one verse of the Bible, this is probably one you should start with. If you don't ever memorize any other passage in the Bible, this is probably one that you should hold on to because the reason it's repeated is because we need this as a constant reminder. We need to be reminded the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One. Is understanding. We need to be reminded of that because honestly, some of us become too comfortable with God. We see Him as a friend 
rather than a father. And you're like, wait, I thought we were supposed to be friends with God. I thought being a friend with God was a good thing. It is, and we can be friends with God. But the problem is we become so comfortable with a friend of God. We view him as like our buddy and our, our, our guy that we hang around with. We view him as the guy who shows up and helps us do things, and then he goes off about his business. We view him as this guy that um, is always going to have our back, and, and, and we're never gonna, he's never going to call us out. He's always going to be on our side. He, we're never going to have to ask for forgiveness because it's just there, and we're never going to get punished or, or, or have to deal with that because God's our buddy. He's our friend. And we forget that He's so much more than that. Yet we can be friends with God, but to be friends with God, we got to remember that the cross is what it took for us to be that. To be friends with God didn't cost you a thing, but it cost Him everything. You see, we got to be reminded that He's not just a friend, He's the Father. You need to be reminded that when you pray, you're not just talking to a friend like you picked up the phone. You're talking to the God of the universe who created law just by speaking it into existence. Sometimes we need to be reminded that when we sin, we're not just making a, an enemy against somebody else. We're not just making a, we're not sinning against a friend or a brother. We are sinning against the all-seeing, all-powerful God. Maybe it'll shake the way that we sin a little easier because it shouldn't be comfortable for us to sin, knowing that A, God sees it, and God can judge it right then and there before your next breath. You see, we need to be reminded sometimes because we become so comfortable with God that we come into the house of God to worship God, but when we get here, sometimes we completely ignore Him. We'll walk through those doors and we'll be more concerned about the people that are here. We'll walk through those doors. We'll be more concerned about the songs that we'll sing. We'll walk through those doors and as soon as we sit down and say, we'll take our focus off of everything else except what's going on for lunch or what's going on next week. And we're physically here, but mentally and emotionally, we're a million miles away. And we'll treat him like we did him some kind of favor by us showing up here this morning. We'll treat him like we did something good for him because we came to his house, even though, hey, we're here, but we're not here. You see, sometimes we need to be reminded there should be fear and there should be reverence and there should be this respect and, and there should be this way that we approach God that we don't approach anybody else. If we approach Him in this way of understanding, this fear and this awe and this wonder, we lose every claim we have to a moral standard. We lose every claim we have to any moral high ground. When we come to fear God through this awe and respect, we lose every claim to our source of, of, of moral understanding and our source of moral standards because the source of wisdom and understanding comes from our reverence and respect and our, his morals and his ethical standards, not ours. Not the nation we live in, not the culture we live in. He is the defining factor in all of our ethics and all of our morals. And when we see him for who he is and not who we want him to be, then we re have this proper respect and this proper reverence for him. And so let me ask you this morning, are you wise enough to have this respect and this fear of the God that we came to worship this morning? Or did you just come here to, to, to do what we normally do? Did you guys sign on this morning online? Did you guys come in here because you honestly wanted to be taught and corrected by the God of the universe who spoke everything into existence? Or did you just come because this is what we do on Sunday mornings? You see, if we don't fear God then we're never going to gain the wisdom of God. If we don't respect Him and revere Him, we're never going to gain the understanding of Him. You see, we've got to be wise enough to live out the wisdom that requires us to respect God for who He is and not who we want Him to be. The last test is of, of being wise is that we have to have a connection between our choices and our consequences. Sarah Casey was a public school teacher for over 15 years, and she still is. She's won lots of awards. She wrote lots of things. And she says she's noticed that um, 
that she works with, with middle school and high schoolers, but she says that she's noticed there are three categories of kids that go to the office. Right? The first category of kids that are sitting outside the office waiting to talk to the principal, the first category are ones that are there because of an overbearing teacher. A teacher that honestly is going to send you out for, a, if you breathe the wrong way, they're going to send you to the office. All right? Now, that's not every teacher. That's not most teachers. That's very few teachers. I'm going to tell you that, that I've had those teachers, and I was not one of those teachers, but I taught with some of those teachers. Right? Some of you have probably had those teachers that if you, if you like picked up your pencil the wrong way, you were gone. Right? They weren't going to deal with anything in the classroom. So category one were, were students that were there because there was this overbearing teacher who was going to send everybody out, didn't matter what it was for. The second category of students were students that were there because they did something dumb. Yet they were smart enough to admit that what they did was dumb and yeah, they deserved to be there. All right? And she says what's interesting is these are the two categories that you see the least often over and over again. That if somebody is, is there because an overbearing teacher or they're there because they, are, they did something dumb, you see them there once and then you don't see them there again. That's the first two categories. She said, but the third category is the one that she sees. These are the repeat offenders. These are the ones that are there over and over and over. These are the students that feel victimized by the situation. And in her words, let me read them for you. Um, she says that these are the students that this group of kids cannot seem to connect their naughty choices with being sent to the office. They simply do not connect their choice to the consequence that follow the choices that they make. Right? So they're going to tell you they got sent to the office for 15,000 different reasons, and none of them were their fault. None of them were because they made a choice to do anything. It was all they were the victim of something. And so this is the last way that we see living out the invitation of wisdom is the wise always connect their choices to the consequences that follow them. In verse 12, Solomon kind of puts it this way. He says, If you are wise, you are wise to your own benefit. If you mock, you alone will bear the consequences. One author says this is perhaps the, the strongest expression of individualism in the Bible because it makes a clear connection between the choices that an individual makes and the consequences that the individual must deal with. You see, the wise person knows that every choice leads to either a benefit or a consequence. The wise person knows that, that bad things happen to people who make bad choices and good things happen to people who make good choices. Now, I'm not going to sit here and tell you, I'm not going to oversimplify that and say that everything that's bad happened in your life because of, of bad choices you made. It's not that easy. Right? But it is simple like this. That if you commit a crime, then you've got to be willing to do the time. If you're not going to maintain your house and your car, then don't expect your house and your car to last forever. Right? If you're going to treat people bad... Don't expect them to treat you good. You see, there's this connection between the choices you make. If you choose this route, you're going to get this result. But if you don't choose this route, you're not going to get this result. And so we've got to understand that wise people have this connection. They, they see this connection. They don't try to blame other people. They don't choose to play the victim. They take responsibility for their own actions and the choices and the consequences that happen after those actions. You see... This is what we see, that, that folks that understand this connection will make better choices. And when you make better choices, it leads to better benefits and less consequences, to use verse 12. All right? So let me ask you this morning, how quick are you to accept responsibility for your choices? When something happens as a direct result of your choices, do you look to blame somebody else? Do you look to, to shift that to somebody else? Or are you going to say, no, this is my choice and the buck stops here? That what's happened to me is because of the choices that I've made. That what's happened in my family is because of the choices that I've made. You see, wise people connect the choices they made with consequences and blessings that follow those choices. Now, it's not always a one-to-one. -one, it's not always a direct relationship. But it's simply this, that if you make a choice, 
You need to be able to accept the consequences of it. Don't try to point fingers to other people. Don't try to take the, or shift the blame to somebody else. Wise people understand that I made this choice, and this is the result of it. And if we don't make that connection, then we have that choice the next time, we're going to find that same consequence. And over and over again, you see, that's why those kids are the repeat offenders, because they never connect the choice with the consequences they make. And if we're going to live out the invitation of wisdom, we've got to marry those two together. The choices we make are, result of the, are the consequences, the result of the choices that we make. You see, we live out the invitation of wisdom and is, is walking this path and living this life, but there are so many that don't accept that invitation. You see, I started telling you about George Vanderbilt and how he invited his family and his friends down for Christmas. And it was written in the paper that he invited over 300 people to Christmas Eve, to this Christmas Eve celebration. In a girl's journal who wrote down everything that happened in the house, do you know how many people she said showed up? Forty. Three hundred people got invited to one of the biggest houses in the world, one of the best banquets in the world, one of the, the richest people in the world, and only forty of them accepted the invitation and came to it. You see, there's a lot of people they won't accept the invitation of wisdom because they've already accepted the invitation of folly, of foolishness. And that's the other invitation. That's where we're going to end this morning. If we're not accepting the invitation of wisdom of the here and the now, then we're going to end up walking into the house of foolishness. We're going to wind up accepting this invitation by mistake because she presents herself very much in the same way as wisdom does. And we're going to kind of skip around a couple passages here. But I want you to look real quick in verse 14 where Lady Folly's house is at. And Lady Folly's house is at the highest point of the city, which is exactly where wisdom is calling out from in verse 3. And, and the invitation that she gives is almost identical to the invitation of wisdom. I want you to look in verse 16 for me just a second. She says, Whoever is inexperienced, enter here. To the one who lacks sense, she says. You see, that's the exact address. That's the exact invitation that's given in verse 4 by the lady of wisdom. You see, so the location is the same and the guest list is the same, but that's where the similarities end. You see, that's where everything changes because Lady Folly, once we see that, she is nothing but a cheap counterfeit of what wisdom truly has to offer. You see, where Lady Wisdom sends out a servant, Lady Folly doesn't do that. She doesn't have a servant to send out. See what she does in verse 14 and 15. And while Lady Wisdom is sending out this servant, Lady Folly is sitting at her doorpost in verse 14. She sits at the doorway of her house in verse 15. She calls out to those who pass by and those who go straight ahead on the path. She is lazy. She's not going to prepare. She's just going to wait for folks to come to her. She, she's not calling out for them. She's not going to go out and get them. She's just going to sit there and yell out. Right? And notice that there's no comment about pillars. There's nothing established about her house. She has a doorway, but that's it. There's no foundation to build on with folly. There, there's no civility there to build on with folly. There, there's none of that listed for folly. Also, you notice that the menu is completely different because for Lady Folly, her menu doesn't consist of marinated meats and mixed wine. You see, in verse 17, her menu consists of two things. Stolen water and bread that is eaten secretly, or bread that's eaten in secret places. And it's eaten in secret places because, guess what? It's stolen as well. Right? You don't have to hide eating bread unless you stole it from somebody else. And these two things, they're meant to give you this temporary pleasure, but not a lasting fulfillment. But these are meant to, to taste good to the tongue, but provide no substance to you whatsoever. Think about it. If your diet consisted of bread and water, and that's all you ever had, and you had to steal those, 
how healthy would you be compared to the, what wisdom has to offer you? See, it may taste good, and she says that it's going to taste sweet, but let's be honest. Bread that is stolen isn't any tastier than bread that's not stolen. Water that is stolen isn't any sweeter than water that I get out of my faucet. All right? I used to think about like tap water versus bottled water, and I know there's people that can tell all the difference. And, I'm, and for me, it was the hardest thing because I just always pictured that it's coming from a tap somewhere. There's very few times that natural spring water is actually from a natural spring. There's some dude at the Coca-Cola plant just sitting there with a bottle, like just filling up one right after another after another. Right? You know what? To me, that water, and you might have a different palate than I do, but to me, that water doesn't taste any different than other water that comes from a different plant, all right? Now, I'm not going to say it doesn't taste any different than Cleveland City water, because it does, okay? But it doesn't taste any different than the West Virginia Mountain Spring water and the, the Blue Ridge Mountain Spring water. I don't taste any different in them, all right? And she's going to tell you that water that was stolen tastes sweeter than water that's not. That's not true. It's all water. It's all going to taste the same, all right? It doesn't matter if it was stolen or not. It's coming from the same source, the same spring. And so she's telling you this because she wants to give you a sweetness that actually becomes an addictiveness, and there's no fulfillment to it. There's no nourishment in any way. There's no life-sustaining nourishment in any of this. You see, Folly's invitation is this mystery. This is what's behind the door number two, that you don't know what waits on the other side, that you don't understand what you're getting into. The, the invitation sounds the same. It looks good on the outside, but what is actually behind the door? You see, what unwise people don't understand that we get a privilege to is verse 18. We get to know what lies behind door number two before we make that choice. In verse number 18, the last verse of the chapter, verse 18 makes it clear, but he, the one who accepts Folly's invitation, he doesn't know that the parted souls or the dead are there and that her guests or in the depths of Sheol. Sheol is the place of the dead uh, in the Old Testament. It's the place of the dead for the Hebrew people. And Warren Wiersbe puts it this way. If we accept her invitation, then we attend a funeral and not a feast. And the funeral is that of ourselves. See, this morning, we are like on Let's Make a Deal. There are two choices. There are two invitations in front of us. There is an invitation of wisdom that here it is. Here's the best and here's what you can choose. Or you can choose what's behind door number two and you can take your chances with foolishness and folly. And so the question for all of us this morning is which invitation are you willing to accept? Are we willing to accept the invitation of wisdom that comes from the fear of the Lord that leads to life? Or are we going to accept the invitation of folly and foolishness that is this cheap invitation that's only going to lead us to one place? To death and destruction. You see, the invitation is to you this morning. The invitation to you online this morning is will you accept the invitation of wisdom or will you accept the invitation of folly and foolishness? You see, because just don't like let's make a deal, you don't get to choose both. You can't take curtain one and curtain two. You can't stand on the stage and say, I don't want either one of them. Because by taking neither one of them, you've made a choice to go with the other one. You see, like on let's make a deal, you get one chance and that's it. You get one option between these two choices. You can't choose both, and you can't choose neither. So this morning, which choice are you going to make? Which invitation are you going to accept? Let's pray together.